Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we check out the bottom of the table as it gets even tighter, but there's a huge win for Bournemouth, which spurs their survival hopes. Everton as well, who came past Brentford, should Ivan Tony be selected for England this week, despite the charges that he faces over gambling? There's a big point for West Ham United and Leeds as well, but defeats for Leicester and Forest, as well as Crystal Palace. Southampton get a viral point at Manchester United, will debate Casemiro's red card. All that and more on the game. Hello, welcome back to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wizencroft. Uh, today, on a glorious Monday morning, alongside Tony Cascarino, Alison Rudd, and Gregor Robertson. And before we get into the football, you know, we got to mention it. You know, the elephant in the room. We've all been talking about it for a week. Don't really care what's happened with Gary Lineker at the BBC, although I'm looking at the news channel above me and it says he's going to return this weekend, which is great for him. But it was, looking back at the programmes that we got, with the football highlights on the weekend... Just the weirdest experience. I mean, it was almost like, why is this even on? This doesn't really do much to to tell us anything about what happened in these matches, to be perfectly honest. It was weird. Very, very weird. And um, just to let you all know, it makes doing this job very, very hard. I didn't know how much I used Match of the Day as a crutch to help me do my job. But um, I don't know what to say today because Match of the Day just was, it was inadequate. It was weird, Tony. Well, you're asking the worst person on this <laughs> group of people to, because I don't watch matches today anyway, because I work very early on Saturday and Sunday morning. Um, it's on too late, and you can get a lot of football on before match of the day appears. Um, so to me, it was a bit of a storm in a teacup. Uh, I tend to agree with you on that one, especially all the front pages last week. But but match of the day, Gregor, did you miss it? It was just really weird. Yeah, I think I did miss it. And it made you realise that no matter how much people complain about the the quality of analysis or commentary or who it's coming from sometimes, you know, whether people are too partisan or whatnot. Like viewing football without some form of context and like human interaction almost is is like, you know, it's it's just there's not nowhere near the same and it was just bizarre. The main thing was how bizarre it was not having any commentary. And you know, commentary is something that is that is you know, chastised. People, you watch football games, particularly live, and you, you can go on social media these days and you, <laughs> you get so much anger and vitriol about the people speaking over over it. But it's better than having nothing, absolutely. Arguably, the quality of analysis is, is, is better elsewhere, but it's still a kind of something that's familiar and part of your, your week, certainly, you know, for millions of people around the country and certainly for us. And I, I agree with you. It makes, sometimes you disagree with the analysis, but it gives you a, a basis to you know from which to to make your own uh so it was very strange weekend and yeah like just the bbc got itself in an awful mess and i i i know you kind of said he didn't care i think that what what they were doing the whole fuddle they got themselves in was was an absolute shambles and i'm very glad to see and to hear that gary lineker's gonna be back on screens next week allison what did you make of match of the day this weekend uh, it was a big one because 
I think it underlined um, how big it is in terms of many football fans' football diet, if you like. Um, it's just a staple part. I'd, I'd said going into the weekend, uh, I think I said on the radio show on Friday, yeah, we talked about it on Friday uh, on, on my radio show, and I was kind of saying, look, I think Matt's today is just going to be, it's just going to be action. And I thought at that point in time, we would get lengthy action with commentary. And I was like, that might even be better. And then, of course, I thought, well, what happens after the weekend's football? Yeah, we talk about the goals and the incidents and stuff like that. But for a lot of people, it's, did you hear what Sooness had to say? Or or Neville and Carragher on Sky? Were you listening to, to Peter Crouch or Rio Ferdinand on BT? Did you hear what, you know, Alan and Ian and Gary were saying on Saturday night on Match of the Day? And it kind of drives the next few days of football chat. It's just part of our our culture, if you like, in terms of football. It's one of the things that many people consume and can have a chat about, you know, football fans alike. And and that one of those big elements, match of the day, was missing. And um, it, it left a bit of a hole for, for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, even people who watch it post-ironically or whatever, they probably still missed it. I tell you what, though, I found it really, I, I didn't like it at all because, you know, when they do in the early rounds of the FA Cup and the BBC do, they don't do commentary, they do a roundup and they flit from one ground to another and you just hear... Or you, you don't hear a commentator and you don't hear the presenter. You're just given the noise of the crowd for a few seconds and how it's different from ground to ground, but feels like it lacks soul. They're just doing this quick roundup. And if it was your your team, you'd feel a bit miffed that you got like six seconds on match of the day. It felt like that. And therefore, what it felt like was a glimpse of a potential future when we have a Super League and this is what the Premier League would become. It would just become this quick round after after watching Real Madrid six times. It would it was just felt like it's amazing what packaging can do, even though you know how big the teams were on that show, the treatment it got made it feel like you were watching someone's video of the pub game that, you know, the their brother had played in and they wanted to show you when the pigeon shat on his shoulder and it's just like it was just like oh the, you know it, it matters how you put things in context and the hype you give things and even Gary's little aside so when what he's good at I think is treading that line between the people who know exactly what's happened and people who don't who've decided to wait for match of the day so he'll say something that tantalizes the person who's managed to avoid knowing much, but is knowing for the person who knows everything. And without that sort of knowingness, it it's quite easy for something as sexy as the Premier League to look quite boring. And it did, to be to be honest, at times. It was very, very weird. Um Why didn't they use AI? Oh, oh listen, Tony, you're gonna do me out of a job here because <laughs> I <laughs> I've seen those AI presenters and I've got to say it's very scary for someone like me, particularly because they're so attractive. Um, you know, none of them seem to put on any weight, um, you know, perfect teeth and all that stuff. And they never stumble over their words, which you all know I regularly do, uh, nor do they waffle on. So no, you know, I, I can't advocate for AI presenters, unfortunately, Tony, no. Well, I was a bit disappointed that Alison didn't go around because she just doesn't live too far from Lenico and knock on his door and... <laughs> have an interview with him. <laughs> what happened, Alison? Don't need to live near someone to be able to grab the interview. Anyway, he he got in his car very early that morning, so I couldn't 
I see. So you did go outside of his house. He just already... Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was in Leicester, wasn't it? It was a weird weekend uh, for the... Well, weird week, really, for the BBC. But, um, yeah, it looks like Gary Lineker's going to be back. All I'm saying is, and I know it sounds weird, but I'm just... I, I wouldn't mind a Monday night match of the day. You know, get in the office. You've all sorted things out now. Ian, you know, they're still going to get paid. Alan, I, w- I want to see a show, all what, right? What do you think? Because as Alison alluded to, the quirky line he'll use every now and then, what do you think his quirky line will be? And then he like Gary Lineker. Yeah. The, when he comes back. Yeah, when he comes back. He loves a quirky line. Uh, so. Yeah. Um, do you know what? I think he'll take it seriously. I think, I think, because I know people that worked on the show and they were kind of furious about the programme that did go out. They thought it was unacceptable for the for the um, for the program and the history of the program, but also kind of an unacceptable program for the viewers. You know, I saw people at the weekend online saying, you know, for people who can't see, this is a you know really inadequate. There's nothing here that we can we can't interact with this program in any way whatsoever. Um, so I think there'll probably be an, a more serious apology, to be honest, at the start. And I think he'll say it's great to be back and thanks for the support. I don't think he'll make a joke out of it, to be honest. But you never know. Maybe at the end. Maybe at the end. Anyway, uh, Gary Lineker looks like he'll be back on Match of the Day at the weekend, barring any more debatable tweets, shall we say. But anyway, let's get into the football. And, and look, I'm going to have to start with Liverpool once again this week. I'm, I'm so sorry on a Monday morning as well, because a 7-0 victory against a team flying high in the Premier League in the shape of Manchester United, who are playing so well, to back that up with a 1-0 defeat against the side who started the weekend bottom in the shape of Bournemouth, is just, well, really being brought down to worth. Mo Salah, glaring penalty miss. Even so, a point against Bournemouth wouldn't have been great for Liverpool. Bournemouth moving out of the relegation zone. Excellent win for them. It also damaged those chances that Liverpool have of qualifying for the Champions League next season. I want to start on Bournemouth, Tony, because it's a huge win for them, particularly the the position that they're in. But also, you know, it was a shattering defeat to Arsenal. 97th-minute winner. They played, well, I say they played so well. They got two goals in, in front in that game, but they gave so much, really. And it could have easily gone the other way. It could have had the effect of, of really taking all of the confidence out of that group of players. So to respond with a victory against Liverpool, just massive for them. Um, and massive for Gary O'Neill as well. You, you know, you've got to give them some credit here. Absolutely. I was lucky enough to speak to Gary O'Neill the week before the, the, the game at Arsenal. Really enjoyed the conversation. And he did say that because they had Man City, obviously Arsenal, Liverpool as three games, he talked about he wanted to try and be brave against them, you know, them particular sides, because we know what well, Man City beat them 4-1 and quite comfortable at the vitality. But he wanted to have a go and try and score, uh, cause them problems. And he scored in all three games against them teams. He scored against City, obviously scored against Liverpool, and they scored a couple at Arsenal. And their performances have been decent. You know, they're looking like a side that are well-structured. I mean, they call Liverpool out numerous times, you know, where Liverpool held their, 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 their line for offside. They broke in behind two or three occasions during the game and did it brilliantly well and obviously got the reward with Billings' goal. They exploited Liverpool's fullbacks being higher. And, I, you know, we're going to talk about Liverpool, I'm sure, a bit later. But I wasn't surprised by the result because Bournemouth have probably been playing way better than... Most teams down the bottom half of the table. And that, in anything, showed... You know, you can always say character of, like, Arsenal coming back from against Bournemouth and winning 3-2 and how they did it, you know, just shows character. But Bournemouth showed every bit as much character in their performance against Liverpool at the weekend. 
excellent from them. Gregor, what did you make of it? Yeah, I agree, agree with Tony. I mean, they, since really the, the defeat against uh, Burnley in the FA Cup in January, they've actually been playing pretty well. Lots of late goals are conceded. Conceded late against Brighton, uh, against Forest, against Arsenal, as we know. Beat Wolves, drew Newcastle. So I think, you know, the it seemed the kind of common commonly held view has been that Southampton and Bournemouth are doomed. So there's one place up for grabs. I don't think that's that's true. And I think Bournemouth probably, as much as any of those three teams, have definitely got some fight left in them. And I, was, I did a bit of analysis for Saturday's paper about the about the kind of you know there's nine teams where you could throw a blanket of, over them with six points. Now it's five. It's going to be so close. And looking at the run-ins. Bournemouth have the most favourable running. Uh, I think in their last seven games, they play West Ham, Southampton, Leeds, Palace and Everett. So it's in their hands. Like, it's very much in their hands. And I think a couple of signings that, that have been made, I've improved them. Utara's kind of, his pace and his power and his running in behind was caused turmoil for Liverpool. And we saw that in the build-up to the goal, but we saw that when he was sent clear through and, and probably should have scored. He took a heavy touch around Allison. I think I think there are a couple are also settling in. Senesi, the defender, had a really difficult time when he arrived in his opening period uh, when he arrived in the summer. I think he started to find his feet in the Premier League. One of the kind of areas I looked at in that piece of Saturday was how important certain individuals are to each team. So if you look at like Dominic Calvert-Lewin to, to Everton, you, you look. I think you look at Bournemouth and Neto is probably their most important player because they. I think they they conceded way more goals in like the nine games that he's missed because he had a, a period around Christmas where he was injured. He wasn't playing when they when they shipped nine goals and against Liverpool the last time. His influence is huge, and he's the captain now. So you know, keeping him fit and well as well will be huge for them. So a few things are just going and changing the, their trajectory a little bit. And look, it's going to be tight. But as, as I say, they have a favourable run in, and I think it's going to be in their hands now. Yeah, I should say Bournemouth came out of the bottom three after that win, but obviously West Ham's point took them back into it, but it's incredibly tight. They're one of three teams on 24 points, so they're on goal difference in the bottom three, but there are two teams with the same number of points with them. And you mentioned how tight it is at the bottom of the table, Gregor. Those five points actually now cover Palace in 12th all the way to Southampton in 20th. So one, two, three, four, nine teams. I mean, it's just Mm -hmm. absolutely... Uh, incredibly tight and you, you can't call it anymore I mean uh, you know you can have an inkling as who you think might go down but there's no way you can predict it Everton against Bournemouth on the final day could be an absolutely massive game and funnily enough even in their final four matches Bournemouth I think they have their harder games are actually could could be at that point in time much more winnable because they face Chelsea at home Chelsea at that point in time could that you know their top four aspirations could be basically done um, I, I know they've had a little resurgence. We'll talk about them a little bit later, but who knows? And then you've got Manchester United in your penultimate game at home. But again, their top four place could already be secured. So you could see a raft of changes. Um, and it could be a game that you almost secure your top flight status. Bournemouth just need to ride the wave at the moment. At this point in time, they're playing pretty well and at least got the, the win this weekend that their play deserved. But when you look at Liverpool, it has to be deflating for them. Um, I know we were talking just before... Uh, we came on air, Tony, and you said, I'm not really surprised that Liverpool lost to Bournemouth this weekend. Why? It's quite obvious. Yeah. They won 7-0 last week. No, no, it's quite, yeah. <laughs> it's not that obvious. If you want to go on over one game, yeah, look, it looks really unlikely. 
If you want to take it over a course of this season, it isn't. To me, that has been obvious all season, that Liverpool can be caught, be exploited, in behind, get their offside line wrong, and they will be punished. I've seen so many one-on-ones that Alisson has had to face. And in the early part of the season, he saved a lot of them. And it hasn't been the case of late, where he's getting position. There's a forward who is just getting beyond, who's quick, who's getting beyond the, the, the back line, and they're away. They're at Liverpool's goal. I've seen that numerous times this year. So I didn't, I didn't, wasn't surprised by what Bournemouth winning the game. You know, if you said to me, you know, Bournemouth before the game, are they, I think they were a seven to one shot to win the game. I would say, well, that's probably wrong because they're not. You know, this game could go either way because Liverpool are not as good. Um, and they could, if Liverpool got the fourth place, in my opinion, it would be by really more by default by others. Because Liverpool haven't been good enough. I'd love to say on here, Liverpool were back after their 7 0. I'd love to say that. They're not. They're well short from what they were from last season. And this season has been, you know, in many areas of the pitch, it's been a problem. Whether it's been midfield, whether it's been defensively, they now look like they've got a forward line that will get goals, but it's not finished there. That is not the finished article of Liverpool. Not a surprise at all. Alison, do you, do you agree with Tony? We, well, how surprised were you then with this result? I wasn't surprised at all. I actually, I predicted nil-nil, so <laughs> it was slightly worse than I predicted. <laughs> uh, it's just, I mean, the reason for that is partly because you don't ever recover, I think, as a Liverpool fan from seeing your team beat Crystal Palace 9-0 and then getting knocked out of the FA Cup by them. Well, that happened in 1990. So you, you sort of know that don't ever it, it football isn't isn't a smooth trajectory i mean man city have made it look like that in recent seasons but it's not it really isn't and i think we discussed probably last time out that um on a monday that man united played into liverpool's hands a bit because they they tried to play football for a while and after this defeat bournemouth um trent alexander arnold said that oh, Bournemouth slowed the game down. We didn't know what to do. I mean, basically, if you, if you, it's quite nullify, easy to nullify Liverpool. That's the point. And so, hats off to O'Neill for, for looking at that, for thinking, I'm not going to be scared. As Tony points out, I'm not going to be scared of Liverpool. But equally, there's enough evidence if you go through this season on how to frustrate them. And I just think actually it's quite odd that Alexander Arnold admitted that they, what you know, what do you think is going to happen when you go to a team that's fighting for its life that has relatively small resources at the grounds, you know, a bit tin pot? It's all it, it doesn't it doesn't really smack of Premier League at all. What do you think they're going to do? Your attitude can be good, and you can think, yeah, yeah, we want to we want to go for it and attack them, but they're not going to be so stupid as to think that they can. If they try and match Liverpool's style, they're going to outscore them. You, you you have to be pragmatic. And it's as if that pragmatism is coming as a surprise, which is really odd. Liverpool have been a big team for a long time. They, they must by now, you think, be used to the opposition not playing into their hands. And that, I think, was what I was most cross about. Yes, there's this weird thing that at lunchtime Liverpool aren't playing well. Why that would be? Most players find lunchtime kickoffs a bit um, dull, and the, you know every, the whole vibe is dull because people haven't drunk as much, or the fans haven't drunk as much, and the players probably 
because they don't play that often at lunchtime. It is slightly unusual and the routine's slightly different. It just seems harder for Liverpool to get up for it. But also Liverpool are on telly at lunchtime, usually because they've got a big game coming up and that will be a sort of, it's like a subliminal reminder, I think. Liverpool knew, oh, you know, we're playing at half past 12 because we've got a Champions League game that's going to be incredibly tough and potentially humiliating in the week. So those things all feed into it. But the awesome. idea that Liverpool are surprised, <laughs> surprised by Bournemouth's tactics is a shocker. I've been polite. I've let you talk about the 12.30 kickoff and looking ahead to big games and all of that stuff. And I can't let it run. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't I, I, offering it as an excuse. I was just, I was just saying that, will, that that is in the mix. A tiny bit in the mix. I mean, minuscule. Liverpool have to beat Bournemouth if Liverpool are 10th. You know, if Liverpool are a mid-table side, they have to beat Bournemouth. They should be beating Bournemouth. I'll to that- lose the game, I think it's, you know, all right, you, you know, you can't always play your best. And I get it. They had a huge chance to score a goal in that game that Mo Salah missed for the penalty spot. But they, they had to be much better over the 90 minutes and then they would have scored at least once. Liverpool just weren't good enough for whatever reason. They just weren't good enough. Hugh, I was at the game at Crystal Palace a couple of seasons ago and Liverpool won 7-0. In a very short space of time afterwards, they'd lost their next six home games. So what are you saying about this team? This, this so, so what you're saying is, it's a common theme now. More than one season. Malta, he, he, Nobody he, went on to win the... Alisson went back to 1990. So what you're saying is that there's some kind of fragility, fragility concerned when it comes to Liverpool that means in the space of one season, they can regularly demolish teams and also be beaten by them. They're just not... I, I don't know what the word is, but they're just not that that, monitor, seeing, that they, winning machine. We're seeing things from them that were once... Like, once you would have thought were so unfamiliar that are now becoming familiar. Like, even Andy Robertson getting, you know, raced past by Utara in the build-up to that goal. And Van Dijk looking like he was all at sea and almost kind of thrown in the towel a little bit. These are things that you're like... You, you were rubbing your eyes a few weeks ago, a few months ago, going, what, what are we seeing here? I know it's happening regularly, so it's not. It isn't. It shouldn't be that much of a surprise. I completely agree with crisis of confidence, maybe. Well, I, this, yeah, and the kind of again, you can't escape that there looks to be a bit of lethargy there. Like, and those two things are often intrinsically linked. It's not, you know, to be all action and full of energy, you need to be right in your mind as well. That's kind of, as I say, they they are linked, but they just looked. And even the the chance the chance in the first half when Trent Alexander Arnold tried to kind of make a half clearance, half tackle and like sook the ball across the pitch through. It's just kind of things that you're looking at going, what what was that? Mm. Um, so, and that's, as I say, that's becoming familiar. So there is something underlying that's, you know, you can't just look at the result last week and we did say this, that it's not, you know, that's not everything healed and well now. And we, we saw the evidence of that. They had, they had other chances. We have to say Van Dyke's had two headed, uh, yeah. two, two chances from great headers. Jota, one kind of run in the second half that pulled off a great save from, from Neto. Penalty. penalty. So it could have been different, but it wasn't. And Bournemouth, you know, dug in. They, their wingers kind of trapped back a lot of the time, but then they also threatened him behind. Solanka was full of running. And Billing, Billings was, was the man on the spot when he had to be. So huge credit to Bournemouth still. Just just picking up on, on Gregor's point about lethargy, is there any chance at all, Do you do we think, that because there is lethargy this season with Liverpool, that they prepare the team for the Man United game with the plan to be intense and they planned for the second leg against Real Madrid to be intense and they had this as their rest match. 
can never plan for a ref match. I mean, it, it can be as subliminally, it's like a, <laughs> the players look at those two games and go, we've got Bournemouth in between that. You know, you slightly sit, but you know, see, I, I would be playing the same level, but it, you can't ever plan for a rest match. No, and I would have said Al that the Bournemouth game is every bit as important as the Real Madrid game because it's a game if they win, they can get very much closer to the top four. Even though I sort of said all season, I don't think they'll make it. See, a rest game? I can't remember in my career really anyway, any manager ever saying, "Well, this is a sort of a free hit today or a rest game." Or, no, I don't mean it's a free say, hit. Yeah. I don't mean it's a free hit. I mean you've got three three games on the trot, and emotionally you want to win the game at home mm. against Man United. It's always a big game. You want to do it yeah. and have fun and have fun and go for it. You don't want to be humiliated in the Champions League because Liverpool have an amazing European tradition and they don't want to go out the competition with a an embarrassing whimper. So but if you know your players are tired and they're not functioning hundred percent this season, then maybe you introduce elements of preparation and training and so on that means that you're not at it for one of those three games and it turned out to be this one. Yeah, well, there were a lot of incidents during the game you could say there was lethargy involved. I mean, even the penalty, the, I mean, for the older listeners, it was like a Max Ward run-up, if everyone remembers Max Ward. It was a completely weird run-up to uh, take a penalty. Um, and that was weird. It was just weird watching Salah attempt to take a penalty in that vein. I've got to ask, because it's it's a strange one. We're talking about seasons gone by. We're talking about Liverpool being able to put teams away with massive wins and at the same time, you know, lose matches that you would have thought they could easily get the three points in and yet we have to look ahead to a Champions League game where Liverpool have a three goal deficit as they go away to the Bernabeu to face Real Madrid can we wonder if in seasons gone by we've seen it Liverpool can put in an incredible comeback in Europe together and and just astound us because they've done that before when we were least expecting it as well Ancelotti's got Liverpool's number he knows how they play how to exploit them he's done it a number of times he knows exactly what's going to come from Liverpool. And they've got players. Vinicius Junior, if you let him have space to run into, because Liverpool will have to be brave in the game, he'll be told, don't follow Trent. Stay behind him, because you're going to get the ball as soon as we get it. You know, And that is the danger. For... But, but he, Liverpool, I know this sounds weird, but it could be a tight 3-0 win. Do you know what I mean? There's never going to be a nil, though, Juak. That's the main no. problem. I'll say Real Madrid. Let's put it this way. You try, you try and get an early goal, you know, nick a set piece, maybe you get it to 70 minutes with a 1-0 lead, try and keep it as tight as you possibly can at the back, maybe defend a little bit deeper, play on the, the counter-attack, and then who knows in the last 20 minutes, Liverpool thriving in the chaos. If they can get one, who knows? All hell breaks loose. Too many good forwards. Rodrigo, Benzema, Valverde, uh, Vinicius Junior. They will hurt Liverpool. If it was any other team, if it was any other team, PSG, Milan, anybody, I would say this is this is possible. But Real Madrid are so grown up. They will not, even if Liverpool took the lead, they wouldn't wobble. That's the problem. They've got this strut and arrogance and they'll be, they'll be, I agree with Tony. There's the <laughs> Ancelotti's. No, he, he knows what to expect. He's been on the receiving end of it. He doesn't want to be humiliated again. It's so unlikely this time. But if it was anyone else, I'd go for it. Okay, I'll hold out a little bit of belief that Liverpool can do something. Just because they scored seven against my team last week, I'm not counting them out at this point in time. All right, I thought we were quite good until that game as well. So who knows? <laughs> 
and there was a massive win for Everton staying on Merseyside at home to Brentford. That was thanks to Dwight McNeil's goal after just 35 seconds. For me, Goodison Park making the difference once again, I guess maybe a theme of some of the results this weekend, maybe a theme to carry through the next three weeks, will be the ability of some teams to get points at home from here until the end of the season and how much of a difference that will make. I think Everton really capitalised on the teams around them um, because that victory moved them, okay, just a point outside the, the relegation zone, but three places above the relegation zone. So they did move up the table quite significantly. Sean Dyche was talking about mentality and resilience, Gregor, um, at the end of this game and, and feeling that that is improving throughout his squad. Is that what led to their victory here? I mean, yeah, considering how early they scored the goal, it's a long time to to, to hold on to that result. Um, particularly in the second half, I think we saw, you know, a bombardment of the box and people like Tarkowski and Keane stepping up and, you know, Coleman and Godfrey playing na- narrow, Pickford making the, making some really good saves. So absolutely, I think that's what we saw. And I agree with you, the Goodison Park, the atmosphere and the kind of the support that they get there, uh, would have played a huge part in that. It's big for McNeil as well. I and mean, McNeil, I think Paul Joyce said his report saying that he's been booed off in, in previous games. He's a signing that kind of it's not it's not happened for him so far. And obviously uh Deitch, somebody worked with at Burnley and coming in and he's uh got a better chance of getting the best out of him. Um and it was a fine finish. I think it's also interesting that in the last couple of games Deitch has essentially played without a recognised striker, playing Damari Gray through the middle who's at least got the pace and the kind of willingness to, to make runs in behind and a kind of, you know, a midfield three that, as we said in previous weeks, have, can certainly compete with anyone and Onara and, and Gay and Dukuri. And as long as some of them are making runs into the box and Iwobi and McNeil are certainly going to put in the crosses, then ah, that's the kind of, I think that's going to be their blueprint. And again, we saw Pickford stepping up to the halfway line and lumping, <laughs> lumping free kicks into the box. Uh, putting the centre f- centre halves forward to kind of to try and cause chaos, so it's not going to be pretty. Um, there might be some more one nils. I think Paul Joyce, this piece again, he was saying that obviously that's the third one nil win under Deitch, but obviously seventy five wins in the Premier League, thirty were one nil. I think only mm-hmm. Tony P- Tony Pulis is the only one who's who's got more like out of his, the percentage mm. more of his wins. So yeah, as I say, I don't think Everton fans will will be too bothered if they're. Premier League status is confirmed uh, come the end of the season. Exactly, that's exactly the point, isn't it? I think I think the vast majority of Everton fans thought it was a good or at least a reasonable appointment to bring in Dyche, and therefore they must have also accepted we're going to bin the idea that we can play nice football. We're going to bin the idea we were superior in some way. We just need someone who who has what it takes to make sure we don't flounder and we we get out of this. And this is, it sort of builds on itself because it's not as if the crowd are going to turn because they're defending a 1-0 lead from the first minute and not doing much else. Because that's it. That's that's what they've just, they, they agreed with it. They agreed with his appointment. That's what you get with him. It'd be counterproductive to start moaning about it now. Go for it. So if you can, I mean, that's a rare thing in Premier League football for your team to really get behind you playing quite, Badly, but well organised and with effort. And and if you think that's going to get you through, then don't don't sort of grumble about it. Cheer it on like it's the best thing you've ever seen. And if they're going to stand a chance of not finishing in the bottom three, that'll be why because the fans have that 
uh, inner pragmatism to them. See, it's interesting because the running of it at the end of last season, when they stayed up Everton under Lampard, they had a couple of 1-0 wins, which were Everton beat Man United and Chelsea in 1-0. And the four games that they won at the end of that season were all by the odd goal. You know, and that saved them. That got them over the line last season. Mm. And that's obviously Daesh's first port of call is back to that. We've got to just, if we win a game by an odd goal, that's going to be enough for us to stay up quite comfortably. And I, I don't think any of us, like we talked about Liverpool and how obvious that they can be beaten in the manner they did, this is no surprise that Everton are winning games like they are now because we've seen Dyche do this so often with Burnley teams. And he's doing it. I mean, I thought Coleman was really good at the weekend. I thought Anana was really good for Everton, was tripping him in his position of causing problems, denying the opposition the ball. So this is what Everton are going to be from now on in. I've got to ask you and Gregor about the mentality of a squad. If a new manager comes in, you're in a, a relegation dogfight, Maybe you guys fancy yourself as, as as decent footballers, and then suddenly it's uh you know look we're out here fighting for our lives one nils will do don't care too much about playing pretty football on the training ground if you get a chance you need to take it we need to keep clean sheets how excited are you to go to work if you're in a team like that yeah I was going to say it's a really weird one because when you get a new manager coming there's a real lift in the dressing room because people who have been pushed aside or left out get an opportunity there's a little bit of a spring in their step about well maybe I'll get a chance and sometimes managers go well yeah, I'm not playing him I'll play you and give you a chance so there's a little bit of excitement around that you know and then you play the way you do a lot of players are selfish and I've experienced this in dressing rooms where if they're left out and the team need victories and they don't really care if because they're out of the team yeah. so it's it's a tough one I found a group of players that all together through thick and thin and even giving up your individual stuff and uh, uh, does this suit me, that you've got a better chance. If you've got enough of them in your dressing room, you can get over the line. But if you get disconnected players, you just think, I've got to move anyway in the summer. Or, you know, I'm off, you know, and I'm not really that bothered, even though they'll sell the right things into the media and the TV. You get a few of them. So it, it's, Sean Dyche will find the best group that he trusts and also believe that they will all pull for each other which is his biggest challenge. Yeah, it's all about personnel. I mean, I was a defender. If if Sean Dyche came in, it would make your your job very clear. And I think that's the thing. That's true for everyone in, in this team now. Your job's clear. It's pretty, you know, clear about the fundamentals, shall we say, and then even clear about what they do when, they're, when they get the ball. It's fairly, fairly direct. And you look at the Everton squad, and I don't see anyone that jumps out that kind of you would see being a problem in terms of not getting on board with that. Neil Mopes had his issues with kind of, I don't know, opponents and teammates, I think, in the past. Uh, and look, he's not playing. They've not got a striker, really, and he's still not playing. But you then you've got people who also just, do you think, like Coleman, Keane and Tarkowski, he's had, had a Burnley. He's playing, I think he's playing Godfrey at left-back instead of Mikolenko. You know, and then, as I mentioned, the midfield three, there, there, there is the basis there of a team. It will be even, you would have thought it will be last season, I thought, you know, he's asked to play wing back and stuff, but he's done it now under two managers and they've both referenced how how hard he works. Mm. So look, there's the there's the basic basis for a, a Sean Dyche team there. But on that, on Gregor said something there about being clear. And I know this is international football, but John Sheridan came into the Ireland team and he made his debut. And he said to me, John said, when I set it up, so he likes one twos, John. Yeah. Said John, 
don't play a one-two. Jadchon will substitute you. You know, in his game. He said, don't play. I said, John, if I lay it back to you, put it in the channel. Because if you put it in the channel, that's where Jack will show you to put the ball. Okay? He he don't care if he goes out and runs out of play. He will he will tell the player out wide he should be there. He should be running in that channel. And that is what really, you know, that Greg was talking about. Making it clear what you're not going to, the manager doesn't want you to do. Yeah. And I always remember that. John Sheridan was like looking at me and saying, but that's my game. I play one twos. Well, don't do it in this game because you'll be off. Alison, I wanted to ask you about something you can read about in the Times at the moment, and that is the the Brentford head coach, Thomas Frank, saying that Ivan Tony should be called up by England this week, despite the tricky situation, he says, created by his striker's breach of betting rules. Um, Frank says that Ivan Tony is the number two, number nine in the country, if you like, behind Harry Kane. Tony has been charged with a total of 262 breaches of FA guidelines between February of 2017 and January of 2021 before he got to Brentford. It seems and it felt like when we heard about Tony's charges that he'd basically been left out of the World Cup squad because of this. Because we, we, he got called up, um, he got in the squad, remember, and he didn't play in any of the matches and he was on fire and everyone was saying, well, what's the point, Gareth? of calling him up and not even putting him on the pitch for a minute and we couldn't really understand it. And then the next squad, obviously, as we get to the World Cup, he wasn't called up at all. And then we thought, okay, all right, well, you must be taking a stance about the breaches, um, which is still being investigated. You know, we haven't got to an end point as yet. While we're waiting for that, does Ivan Tony deserve to be allowed into this England squad? Should he be still picked until he's found guilty? Well, that's the point, isn't it? I think Gareth Southgate, who would pride himself on being an utterly principled and fair individual. If he ignores Ivan Tony again, he's telling the um, people who judge these things about betting, he's telling them he thinks he's guilty. You've got to, you've got to pick him as if that that is thing is not it's not it's not happening. Yeah, no, you can't you can't you can't I mean the whole thing, there have been leaks. The whole thing's been handled badly. There are so many betting infringements. It sounds like a lot of them might be quite silly. Uh, and it's happened. We've got players playing for England who've, who've been done for betting infringements. It's not as if you're never allowed to play for England again if you've laid a bet. I mean, I just think it's, it's inconsistent to decide that Tony's out in the cold for that. And if it's got nothing to do with that, then prove it by putting him in the squad. I have been consistently a huge fan of Tony, it's not just that he scores um, lots of goals. It's 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 his general uh, link-up play and the impact he has on the team when he's in it. I think he'll be when when all this is over. I think he'll be a massive demand from across not just the Premier League but beyond for 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 what he can do. And it sort of seems to be a, a sort of diminishing talent in the world to be able to be able to play like a old-fashioned centre forward but have so much more to your game as well and in, in, and in that sense he's very much like Kane not as good as Kane different but really impressive I just yes I just think Southgate is sort of telling the world oh I don't you know, don't fancy someone who's facing a charge like that and that, that's wrong I don't know I think that it's a reasonable point I, look I would also love to see Tony called up for England and I agree with Frank he is the second best number nine in the country undoubtedly but I think it's a reasonable point to find it slightly uneasy about calling someone up who is potentially going to face a lengthy ban I think that's a reasonable standpoint I think it's reasonable to let the the process be completed 
and then take a view on it then. Um, I don't think he's making any judgment of Tony, and I think that's that's gone a bit far. But um, I, I don't. I think it's a fairly awkward position for Gary Southgate, and it's not unreasonable to say let's let's wait until that process is is completed before we think about his England future. Um, in the end, wasn't a great result for Brentford. We expected a little bit more from them as well, but big three points for Everton this weekend. Only a point for Leeds United, twice coming from behind to earn a point, and it was an entertaining game against Brighton at home. Pretty crazy second half as well. Jack Harrison scoring at both ends for Leeds, for whom a point, as I, as I say, didn't really do a huge amount. They are 19th in the Premier League. We've mentioned how tight it is down there already. I, I really wanted to ask Gregor about the, the improvements or not under Javi Gracia, whether this game shows us a team that is capable of much more and, and will we see that um, over a consistent period of time? I'm not sure whether this game showed us that or not, to be honest. I think it showed us that what was interesting was that uh, Leeds opted not to kind of play into into Brighton's hands in terms of in terms of pressing them too intensely or too high up the pitch. Uh, you know they often it's been it's been noted in in past analysis where they often kind of stand on the ball and invite teams onto them to open up space and try and exploit it. And I think there was a bit of a you know there was a bit of a lull almost in the inside Ellen Road in the first half when Leeds weren't doing what they do have done for so many years very well, which was kind of hounding Harry the opposition. Instead, Gracia was a bit more measured in his approach. They were a little bit fortunate with Bamford's strike, I thought. And Harrison scored a scored a beauty after obviously, you know, unfortunately kicking one of his own net. Um, so it's a very valuable point against a you know a, a very good Brighton side. I I don't think we've had enough evidence yet to to know whether Gracia's effect's going to be enough for them. I think the biggest the biggest thing, which he actually spoke about after the game, was getting Rodrigo back on the pitch. I think it was only for the last twenty minutes, mm-hmm. but he scored ten goals. He's their leading goal scorer. You wouldn't have thought at the start of the season they would be relying on him to score the goals to keep them in the Premier League, but it's it's looking like he could be a deciding factor. So again, they've shipped a couple of goals. I still have big worries about them defensively, but they need they need uh, goals at the other end, and Rodrigo will certainly help with that. I think. Will Ellen Road help? Because this was a home game. I alluded to it a little bit earlier on, where I thought being in front of your own fans maybe helped mm. you. You know, if that, that fixtures away from home. I think Brighton win comfortably, so there's an energy. There was something inside Ellen Road that helped the players, and again, a bit like Everton, they will need that. Well, you you could put in that bracket that the twelfth man effect of say West Ham, but then you go, well, it could be just as bad if they're not getting results over uh, West Ham. But Leeds certainly tick that box. Everton do. Um, you'd normally think that West Ham with a sixty thousand stadium could be really lively, which it can be, and then the likes <laughs> of Bournemouth and Southampton who are down there. You know, isn't quite the same. So yes, it helps, but they're quite a young team. But the interesting thing I was, I was seeing Nonto being left out again. I'll say left out. You know, coming as a sub, and and you know he looked like he was going to be one of them that was going to make a difference towards the end of the season. Him and Somerville, uh, Bamford didn't look fit, but looks like he's fitter in a better place than he and he was obviously with more time on the pitch. Um, Leeds are still a really strange side to call. I thought watching the game, McC- McAllister, Solly Marsh. Uh, and obviously Matamo were really a problem for Leeds. They couldn't. Luke Alien was all over the place in the game, you know. And um, we keep saying it, but Brian are a really good team. Yeah, they just are. You know, you. But I, I did look at it and go, "Oh, that's a poor result for Brighton." Yeah, which maybe suggests how far they've come. They've come a long way. 
Alison, what did you make of Brighton this weekend? And and am I right in saying that, you know, it's a two-all draw away at Leeds, you know, but it's just, I watched the game and I saw chance after chance and I saw beautiful and dominant football at times, but I just didn't see that defensive resilience. You know, I thought Leeds maybe scored too easily. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but but what did you make of it, uh, Brighton this weekend? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the fact that Deserby said this was uh, the most disappointing result he's had since he joined the club, A, shows the strides they've made because it is a wacky season and going away to a team that's fighting for its life won't be easy for anybody, anybody at all. And the fact that getting a 2-2 draw is such it feels like such a blow when you've played really nice football is is a sign that they are they are really good. I mean it's I wouldn't draw any huge conclusions because I think usually they defend much better than they did against Leeds. They've had the odd game where like the one against Fulham where they, they have over, you know, over 20 shots and can't score but that's sort of freaky as well. I, I, there is a slight, I have a slight concern for Brighton that they might end up looking back on the season and looking at more than a couple of results and thinking, oh, you know, this this season could have been even better had we not let this slip. But they're they're still there's a sense at Brighton that they're still growing and you know this is this is this is a manager who didn't wasn't here at the start of the season and. They're a, it's an evolving team. I, th- I think what's so impressive about them is that at times, not always, but at times they look like, you know, the real deal. They look properly well-drilled and with the ability to, you know, that balance is right. You know, they're all well-organized, but they're allowed to express themselves. I mean, it's a 2-2 draw. And I just noticed that Ian Whittle did the report for the Times and he gave Matoma a nine I mean, a nine is a huge, huge mark when you've only managed to get a point from a team in relegation bother. It just it just shows that when people watch Brighton who don't watch them every week, they're like, wow, I didn't know. Oh, <laughs> golly, I didn't know they were that good. And so it's reflected in the, in the scores. They are absolute joy to watch, which is why I think we're talking about them in this way. It's, it's really not a great... It's not a big deal, is it? 2-2 at least. You know, it's not a big deal, but it feels like a big deal because they play so beautifully and expansively. They're, they're, I don't know, if you want to guarantee entertainment, I would suggest you probably pick a Brighton game. The first goal the first goal was great too. I mean, the way that, I think it was Veltman that chopped back down the line, lifted it up to the back post. Matoma nodded it back for McAllister. That was a kind of, that was a bit of a classic Brighton goal, I thought. And, and you have to say, they could have won it with Danny Welbeck at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, to chop back through the it's quite hit a target. Legs kind of, he, he does yeah. really, really well, but he, he does well to the fashion and Jansen. Yeah. Then you're right; he has to hit the target. So it could have been a win, and he, it's understandable to see why the Zerbi was so dis- disappointed at the end. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. One hundred percent online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. West Ham, vital point for them, I think, at home to Aston Villa this weekend. Six goals in seven games for Villa's Ollie Watkins now, so maybe that's a name that we need to look out for in terms of the England squad. But um but I, I wanted to reflect um on it as being a very important point for David Moyes in particular, because you feel like there's pressure, okay, it's relieved in the Europa Conference League. I don't know how much those results in that competition really relieved pressure on the manager. But um, in front of your own fans this weekend, had there been a poor result against Aston Villa, I feel like there would have been huge criticism of David Moyes. And I I just looked at that result and thought, phew, he's got through it. What did you you think about it, Alison? Does it mean much in terms of his future? Who knows exactly exactly what I thought as well, because they were... um... They were down 1-0 and you thought, oh, are they going to implode and is this the end? And will I look stupid because I've decided Moyes is going to stay, come what may. I think it helped that Ben Rama played and played well. And I think there's this strange dynamic going on with between the fans and the club. They, they're not sort of consistently cross the fans and they do enjoy the European adventure. I think it does matter to them. It's been a a great unifying thing being in Europe for two seasons on the trot. And they're not stupid enough to think, "Ah, meh, it's only Europa League or Europa Conference. It matters to them and they're grateful for it. And I think there is this underlying sense of, we don't feel destructive. We don't don't want to rip it all up and start again. It's, it's, there is some sympathy with Moyes. There are rumours that he's fallen out with players and some of his selections do seem negative. But for as long as he has someone like Ben Rama, who the, the fans have expressed, you know, disappointment that he's been taken off in previous games, the fact that he he's you know, he played well and he was trusted by his manager, just small things like that. So touch of flair, touch of arrogance, a little bit of resilience you know, Aston Villa are, are a good team. Uh, a draw, I, I agree with you completely, Hugh. I felt that was that was not a lot, but it was just enough to stop the speculation about his future, at least for another week. I I was at the the, the game in, in Larnaca during the week. Uh, I spoke to a few fans and 
there is real turmoil in the West Ham fan base about about Moyes' future. I think everything Alison says is correct about you know what he's brought them in terms of European football and uh, you know sixth and seventh place finishes last season's run to the the semi final Europa League. They're enjoying very much this uh, European campaign as well. I saw that firsthand, uh, <laughs> and but at the same time, they just feel that possibly someone else could get more from this group of players that's been assembled now, um, and that's that's going to be the question that they'll have to confront. And I think it's going to be at the end of the season. I don't think. I think with, I've said in the last few weeks, it's going to take something pretty drastic for for them to to sack David Moyes now. Um, I don't. I also don't think this is anything like a performance that is going to that ease the pressure at all. I think you, you know, reading the reports of the week of the game in several uh, outlets, it's kind of the West Ham really, really realise that they're in a relegation battle. Do they are they really doing anything kind of on the front foot to to try and pull clear, or are they just feeling that kind of doing just enough? Getting by is going to be is going to be the way that they'll they'll be safe this season. Look at the, even the game in, in Larnaca. They were, the first half an hour they were absolutely terrible, like shocking. <laughs> and you know lethargic. Then they could have gone behind. And then Saeed Ben Rama popped up with a the first bit of quality, whipped in a great cross to Antonio, who was literally he didn't have to move, just had to shift his neck a little bit to direct it into the corner. And and then Antonio scored a second, and that was it. They were home and dry. So they're they're almost through in that, that competition. And, and Moyes keeps referencing it: two years in the trot and being in the quarterfinal of a European competition. It's a great achievement, and West, that's why there is turmoil in the fan base. It's like he's right. Mm. This is this is a big step forward in one sense, but in another, what they're seeing in, on a weekly basis in the Premier League is feels like at worst kind of stasis, but even. More frequently, it looks like they've taken a step backwards after spending 160 million pounds in the summer. See, we 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 waxed lyrical about Brighton earlier, and the four 0 defeat at Brighton was a bit of a nail in the coffin for for David Moyes. And from there, team or the club are expecting a response. You know, when you've got Ben Rama, Bowen, Paqueta, you think there's enough there to cause a lot of problems. The one that got me Saturday, his performance was so off. I d- I didn't understand was Danny Ings. Now Danny Ings had got a brace a couple of weeks ago. And you think he was brought into West Ham to make a difference. They can't seem to find goals. Like like Gregor talked about, transfer Skamaka is on the bench nearly every week. You know, not seen any development in him at all. And a lot of people have said to me this about David Moyes in the game. Because he seems to really be at his best when he's got a really tight group. And there's not much activity in the transfer market. Mm. And when he goes down the transfers and bring them in and trying to get them to do what he wants from his team... And for years, Everton didn't really have much money to spend and didn't really change too much around. And yet, when he's given money, I say him because it's not him getting it, and they go, you know, get a bit ambitious in the transfer market, things slowly start to fall apart for David Moyes. Maybe I'm a little bit... I I, I kind of agree with you, but I do think even when some of these signings were made, you did think, does that fit the identity of the club, the the identity of David Moyes' team, and and what's he going to get out of them? And I think... I guess one of the disappointments for the West Ham fans is that they want a manager who can be given these, you know, quality players. I know West Ham did play very good football for a while under David Moyes and they're getting to Europe and they're going far in Europe. So it's not about style of football. That's not necessarily what I'm saying. 
but it's more bringing the best out of create really creative players mm. that is the question mark that West Ham fans have had over David Moyes. Fornals and Lanzini have played well under him. Ben Rama has been very inconsistent. I think a lot of what they did good in the last couple of years really rested on Mikel and Antonio being a a forward man who would just pop up with, you know, unexpected goals, but also, you know, just the physicality up front, the ability to, to almost stretch teams and run them into the ground. He's got injured. Skamaka is not the te- same type of player. He's got nothing then David Moyes out of him. And then Ings, on your point on Ings, is just Ings is, he's a goal getter, but he has never really been a consistent scorer of goals in terms of match after match after match after match. And that's probably why he's now playing at West Ham and not one of the big clubs, because we know he can finish. He just doesn't score those goals each and every week that would take him to the 20s, 25s uh, goals a season, Mark, you know, that would that would kind of put him at one of the top six clubs instead of West Ham United. So I just think one of the question marks for West Ham fans is, do we have a manager who has a plan that can get the best out of really creative talents? And I haven't seen a response to that, that yet. Antonio's performance uh, in midweek was like his West Ham career in microcosm. First half an hour, he could not control the ball. He couldn't hold it up. Kevin Nolan stepped out at one point and let him know in no uncertain terms, like with his arms out, like, hold the ball, hold the ball. And then he scored two two goals in the space of like 10 minutes and then he came off injured. Mm. That was like his career in, in, in the hour he was on the pitch. But then even afterwards, so, you know, as you said, Scamacho was on the bench. Danny Ings was the was the topic of conversation when they were throwing the game forward to the Aston Villa game. You know, uh, you know, their opponents at the weekend, that's the Villa. And the conversation then was about, you've got three, you know, three players all fighting for one spot there. There should be some real competition. And he's like, that's what that's what I want. But none of them are doing enough to, to hold on to the jersey, as it were. So you're absolutely right. It's like, it's primarily in those attacking positions because West Ham's defensive record's always been good. And they've even had some injury troubles this year with Agerd and Zuma. And now they're both back fit. That's a big boost. But mm-hmm. even still, they still had a, a good defensive record. It's just about is Moyes the man to get the the best out of the creative players they have now, and are you know then that as you say means are those creative players the right players for Moyes? Okay, not long left, and that's West Ham wrapped up. But towards the bottom of the table, Nottingham Forest lost away from home. Surprise, shock. Three uh, one at Spurs. Uh, Leicester lost three one at home to Chelsea. Uh, so a couple of clubs from the Midlands losing to a couple of clubs from London. And I guess the two clubs that won are ones chasing a place in, in the top four and, and looking towards Europe. Two sides in the Midlands just trying to survive in the Premier League. Let's start with Chelsea, if you like. Beaten Leicester, big question marks on Brendan Rodgers again. But it was an important win for Graham Potter, making it three in a row in all competitions. But this performance had people saying Chelsea are back. Namely, Paul Merson, I think, on, on Soccer Saturday. Well, so, so, you know, take it with a pinch of salt. But you get what I'm trying to say here. Some lovely goals scored. Another good performance from Kai Havertz. Much more balance in the side. Much more comfort defensively. It just looked like a routine win for Chelsea. Great goal from Mateo Kovacic as well. Alisson will come to that. You know what I mean? It was just... It was just Chelsea again. Well, it, well, it, well, it was to a degree, Hugh, but it, that game could have gone either way. You know, Leicester had chances, and a number of them. The one thing that stood out, I mean, you touched on Kai Havertz, because obviously the debate about centre-forwards has gone on for, it seems like, an eternity at Chelsea. Um, and Kai Havertz's performance in midweek against Dortmund really made me feel a lot better about a 23-year-old who needs to fill out a little bit and become a little bit more stronger. And I thought he showed that against Dortmund. And then he's carried it on until the Leicester game. 
Now, Kai Havertz has got a lot of ability. You know, the one thing you're always going to say, can he get between 15, 20 plus goals in a season in the Premier League? At the moment, that's always been no. Can he play the centre forward well? He's got so many good things, attributes that can get him goals. But I do think he needs to become way stronger, which I've seen that development gradually. He's been a slow burner as much as any player I've looked at over the last couple of decades who you just think, God, just a more, always a bit more we want from him. And that's the good thing. And Potter's playing a more consistent team now. Now, getting your 11 and trusting them and as close to your best team as you can is important. You know, you can't keep going through change after change. And then that was the one criticism I said of Grandpa. He's got to find his team, the one that he trusts and the one he believes can go and get results. And Chelsea have now had a fantastic week, getting the Leeds win, backing out with Dortmund and then going to Leicester and winning the game. Are they there? Still not sure. You know, they, they had a couple of weeks ago, they had six game period where the five of them games were at home. So they've got a few home games coming up over the next few weeks again. So that was the opportunity for Potter to find his team and the right personnel to get them results. Alison, what did you think of, of Chelsea's victory? A great goal from Kovacic. Do you feel like they've turned a corner completely? Well, Kovacic only scores great goals, doesn't he? Mm. I mean, and he would be... Um close to a 10 out of 10 player if he could add ordinary goals to his repertoire <laughs> and, and scoring them re- regularly. I think, but actually, seriously, I think Kovacic being fit and, you know, able to play 90 minutes is is a huge deal for Potter because he needed a leader on the pitch. The many things they lacked in that sort of dismal run, they looked young and inexperienced and looking for direction and he didn't have the charisma to provide it from the dugout. And Kovacic gives it to them on the pitch. I thought he was instrumental to the win over Dortmund midweek. And he was at it again against Leicester. I don't think there are any big corners turned. I think it's incremental. They just look, as Tony says, they're looking more settled. It'd be good if he stuck to the same system so the players know what they need to do each week to, to get in the team, if you like. They have to prove that they can flourish in that system. Having Chilwell back is a big bonus, obviously. I mean, he's he's had he's had loads of excuses, Potter. I, there's no point in me listing them all, but there, there've been players missing, and too many players coming in, and it it's been difficult for them to gel. But it's it's not a big step forward. But I, I, I don't I think that probably suits Potter. He's not a big step forward sort of chap, is he? I mean, I think I think could be quite happy that the improvement is small and steady, and he's learning a bit more day by day from his players and yeah they look they didn't look like a team that's the biggest thing isn't it they do they do look like a team with with a proper leader how many times has Joe Felix hit, hit the woodwork now it's getting <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> um you know that, that's the kind of thing that we've been that Potter's been rubbing his <laughs> rubbing his head out over the last few weeks but thankfully people like you know Chilwell's strike was brilliant Havertz goal was was really classy and so was Kovacs and the other thing is again I think Kepa was a little bit fortunate. Came and flapped at two crosses. One, Keenan uh, Dewsbury Hall's miss was just an absolute sitter, like from six yards or whatever. He just didn't connect with it properly. And then uh, Harry Suter could have scored when he flapped another in the second half. I think it was blocked in the line. Um, so, yeah, look, Leicester had some good chances. And with Tony, I think it, it could have been a bit different. But the way that, you know, just that bit of confidence in front of goal made, made all the difference, really. Your former club, Greg, I wanted to come to you about Forrest losing at Spurs three goals to one. 
this was maybe more routine um, than even Chelsea's victory for Tottenham. Um, again, it gives Tottenham a little bit of positivity. They're just an inconsistent team. I mean, some weeks it's comfortable. Some weeks we're talking about them being horrific. It's just at the moment, you know, again, we're surprised by where they are in the table because we've seen some of their poor performances. But ultimately, with the quality that they have, they can still put out performances and, and results like this, particularly if in the shape of Nottingham Forest, a team doesn't travel very well at all. I think it's one Premier League win on the road so far this season. Three draws, nine defeats now, that record. That's not good enough from a Forest perspective. What did you make of this result? Yeah, it seems like Forest were you know, pretty abject in the first half and they improved in the second half. I think losing uh, Willie Bolly has been a huge blow for, for Forrest to, uh, from a defensive point of view. And Joe Worrell's tackle for the for the penalty was was a bit dunderheaded, really. Um, of course, they could have made it a bit of a a nervous finish with the IU's penalty miss uh, towards the end, but Forest away form is is just has just been absolutely horrendous. And and I've again for that piece at the weekend, I was looking at the running, and I think Forest have the the toughest running of any any club in the Premier League. Actually, their home form is they're going to have to rely on that so 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 much. And they welcome, I think they, I think they welcome Arsenal still. I have to welcome Arsenal. And a few other big hitters, and they've got they've got to make the city ground. Or the city ground has been a fortress, but they've got to maintain that because their away form has been so bad. So yeah, really, really, really bad week for Forest, but a kind of timely fillet for Spurs after after the disappointment of of uh, of going to the Champions League. Next two games are at home. Just to to uh, talk about that that journey that they've got between here and the end of the season. They've got Newcastle at home uh, on Friday, first of April. Uh, Wolves, big game. Then Leeds United, huge game. Go to Villa, host Manchester United. Go to Liverpool, host Brighton. And do they have Arsenal? Yes, they do at home. They'll also be away from home against Chelsea. It's a tough, tough run-in for uh, for Nottingham Forest, who do host Southampton before the end of the season. So there are plenty of chances to pick up points. Um, now, the, the thing that I looked at, kind of a stat that I got for that piece, was that basically there's a 24% swing in the points per game ratio collected by the teams who they're still to face as opposed to the ones they've played when you kind of take in a home and away form so like that's the biggest of any in the league and Bournemouth are the best so it's um, it is the toughest running and you know I wouldn't be surprised to see them getting dragged back in a little bit it's just whether whether they've got enough enough firepower essentially I think because they've not scored enough goals what do you think of Tottenham this weekend uh, sorry that was not a, I'm not trying to <laughs> <laughs> it's not an Arsenal song I was trying to start there um, Alisson Tottenham Hotspur um, inconsistent Antonio Conte you know lots of conversation about about his future how much does this result settle things down at Spurs Oh, you're having a laugh, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> it's not going to... It was Nottingham Forest, and you've just explained the worst my, team my, in the Premier League. My point is, home. had they lost to Nottingham Forest, then I imagine most of the back pages would have been about Antonio Conte today. Uh, yes. Yeah, OK, fair enough. But I don't I don't think it settles things down, in inverted commas, that you, that you can narrowly, because it could have been a, could have been different, narrowly beat Nottingham Forest, who aren't very good away from home. It's... But it's just, I'm sort of bored, and the, we all are bored of the excitement of Spurs, aren't we? When are they going to string together something that looks like consistent approach to football and knowing who they are and what their priorities are? It's just silly. So now you've got, there's always a little subplot going on and it was with Charleston this week, you know, who, you know, who's 
who's really shit? Is it him calling himself shit? Is his manager calling him <laughs> shit? Is he calling the team shit? Who's shit really? And it's all making the word shit into some sort of big philosophical debate. Sure enough, sure enough, he plays well because, you know, he's got a point to prove. And I've no doubt his manager said, all right, then you're full of, you're full of the words, show it with action. Um, but it's just, that's just like, it's just one little, one little subplot. It's not, doesn't mean that Conti's cracked it and the team are happy and they know, they know what they're doing. It's, it's just, I'm, I cannot, I think if you could pull together the greatest minds in science and sociology and sports science together, they would struggle to explain the entity that is Tottenham Hotspur who have this strange belief that they deserve to watch a certain brand of football, that they are a big team without ever having ever won anything. The, the whole reason they're in this strange predicament now is they've there is this sense that they are too beautiful an entity to have Antonio, Antonio Conte as their manager, which is absolutely ludicrous, <laughs> utterly ludicrous. They're actually doing quite well. They could very easily finish in the Champions League places. It's not, you know, that is entirely plausible. Overall, it's been a decent season, but with these ridiculous exits in in the cup competitions that's supposed to mean everything to them, they are they are unfathomable. <laughs> I can't say it, but I'm going to say it because that's what they are, and I fully expect them to be trounced within the next. Week. Okay, very quickly, before we end the podcast, a couple of points just to make. Tony, Manchester City beat Crystal Palace, kind of over-celebration at the end from Erling Haaland. Don't know what that was all about. He must have been getting some stick throughout the game because he very much enjoyed it. But James Gearbrandt's written in the Times that Crystal Palace have taken a step back under Patrick Vieira. And he says literally because they are starting their attacks far deeper than they were last season. Well, for whatever reason, Palace are now in it. They are now, you know, I, I don't think... We can call them a team that's kind of too good to go down. Um, I know it was Manchester City this weekend, but just generally speaking, they don't really produce enough. And I know they played okay for a lot of this game, but um, you know, when you look at the table, you can't kind of you can't remove them from the conversation when it comes to to relegation. Well, Roy Hodgson used to get a bit of stick at Crystal Palace because it was a pragmatic manager uh, and his playing style conservative. Now, I'm sorry. Patrick Vieira's team don't offer anything. I mean, nothing going forward. And you've got decent players. You've got Alessé, Eze, Sahar, you know, just to name a few, that can create and cause problems. I'm watching a team. Now, one of the biggest myths in football, I've always said, is it isn't hard to score goals. It only becomes hard if you don't get enough players in the 18-yard box. You can score goals in many different ways. And Palace don't look like scoring in any fashion. Set pieces, out wide, down the middle, one-on-ones, all these things they rarely do. And to have three games back-to-back without even hitting the target, that, to me, is nearly impossible to do. I mean, how could you say a team couldn't have one you know, shot on target in three games? That, that to me, just, that doesn't make sense. That's telling you that your system is flawed. And that's been the biggest disappointment for me about Patrick Vieira's Crystal Palace. They've become blander and blander over the course of a season. Now it looks like they're just in fear. I mean, they offered nothing against Man City. It was basically get behind the ball, just try and stop the space, deny them. If we get a draw out of this game, fantastic. 
but no more. There was no threat at any time from Crystal Palace during the 19 minutes. It was a snooze-off. You know, and you're talking about one of the best teams they were up against. Entertainment is the highest value of Man City because that's how they play. But the only idea from Palace was just got to stop them in every area. And it was a dull, horrible... You didn't even know Man City were in the game. It made Man City look bland. And it, that's a really hard thing to do. <laughs> OK, all right. Tony Cascarino sitting on the fence there. Uh, very, very finally, uh, Southampton getting a point away at Manchester United. Eric Ten Hag, very unhappy, the Man United boss, with Casemiro's second red card of the season. Leaves him looking at a four-match ban now. Um, but I think it was a red card. Um, off his feet, studs up lands on the top of the ball and then makes contact with the player. But ultimately, you are going to get a red card for that. Um, but it's maybe a poor result for Manchester United and a, and a good point for Southampton that we need to reflect on most, uh, I think, Gregor. Yeah, huge point for Southampton. Um, you know, one that we very much wouldn't have expected beforehand. And, you know, certainly I was at the Grimsby game and that was a huge low point. But I think when you take that with the equation, he's, he's definitely made an, an impact yeah. on this team. In terms of their kind of not just work rate, but also kind of how the kind of coherence of the team now. Nathan Jones seemed to be asking them things that they weren't entirely happy to be doing or clear about. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas now they at least look like they know their jobs. I think he's kind of almost gone back a little bit to Ralph Hasenhutl's four-two-two-two. You know, in terms of the 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 wide players are actually quite narrow. Like Walcott, I think came in and he's you know, he played played a little bit inside rather as opposed to just playing out out in the touchline and the basis Lavia at the foot of midfield having him fit again and playing he's he's a brilliant player I think huge boost to have him back fit so yeah great result and for Manchester United I feel a little bit sorry for Casemiro I know what you're saying and I, like particularly when you slow it down you look at the freeze frames and you see his foot planted on his shin but it was unlucky like, he, I don't think he meant to clip the top of the ball and hit his shin I just don't know why, why, why his studs are up like that he could have got... the way you have to, have to go and win the ball like it's kind of no. Not in, that, not, leg out. not in that scenario. Like, and if you are going to put your studs up like that, then then slide along the ground. The fact that you've left the ground with both feet, you can't put your studs up like that. If you make contact with a player, particularly on the shin, and you're that high, you're going to get you're going to get a red I card. Agree. I agree. I, agree. I, I just don't think a poor challenge. I, I agree. I just don't think he in, in any way would, would have meant to do that. I think he's going to kind of prod the ball away with force. He didn't try and use the ball of his foot underneath the ball. He didn't try and use his toes to poke it away or get there first. It was a full-on straight leg studs up challenge. I mean, it's a red, it's a red, I support Man United. I want him to play. That's a red card. If that's against your team, you're fuming. It's a red card. Just about. Well, <laughs> Casasaurus, who played in the 80s and 90s, <laughs> okay, that was uh, a normal sort of challenge week in, week out. But we're now in Hugh's bubble wrap world of football where, <laughs> you know, everybody's intentions are evil. And it's a terrible I, 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 challenge. I don't care about his intentions. It's a bad challenge. I don't, I don't care whether he meant it or not. You're going to get a red card for that. Yeah, in the modern game. In the modern <laughs> game, you are going to get a red card. I, I'm i mixed. I don't like red cards. I think it's a huge punishment. Take them out of the game. Too. Well, <laughs> you know, every, everyone will say the same old line, that could have broke his leg or that could have did it. You know, you play sport and sometimes I've had loads of challenges that were legit challenges and they could have done serious damage. You know, so it is part of sport. Do we want people going around doing ridiculous things on the pitch? No, not at all. But I a... know, but if that wasn't punished with a red card and we saw more challenges like that, we'd see more serious injuries. Yeah. And we don't want that. Either. Well, 
you're from the world of the twisted sock. <laughs> Have you got a twisted sock? You're injured. Been a pleasure. I Tony. think I think in years to come, when they do a review of why VAR was a good thing, this is the sort of challenge they'll use in the PowerPoint presentation because from some angles and clearly from the referee's initial angle, it was a definite yellow. But there, there was one angle where it looked nasty and had to be a red and that wouldn't have been available to the officials before VAR existed. And if, if you agree that, that you know, dangerous tackles do deserve red cards and that is in the laws of the game then 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 that's a good thing I get completely what Ten Hag says about inconsistency we're trying to make the game a bit more physical and yet when it gets physical um, someone gets sent off but then you need you need you need boundaries we're not no one's saying it's going to become murder ball so it's like well fair enough so I, I'm on Hugh's side I think rollable <laughs> do you remember rollable <laughs> yeah, yeah, great yeah. feel <laughs> That's where we've got to end in here. Okay. Oh, actually, actually, I, I meant rollerball. So can, <laughs> oh, right. say, can you take that away? Oh, no, no, we'll leave it as this. Murder, murder ball is what leads do. So it's, <laughs> not, it's, not, it's not murder ball at all. Rollerball. Okay. All right. We have one in the end. It comes like rollerball. <laughs> Alison Rudd, thank you very much. Tony Cascarino and Gregor Robertson, been a pleasure to be with you once again. We'll see you on Thursday. Big games coming up in the Champions League, couple of Premier League games in midweek as well for us to discuss discuss we will see you then remember make sure on this monday that you pick up a copy of the game either pick up a paper download the times app you'll get it there or you can subscribe online at the times.co.uk forward slash the game and we'll see you on thursday